Ready to light that fire by doing the things that make you come alive? Welcome to Health Raisers, a podcast for wise women. I'm your host, Dr. Nadine. I left a soul-crushing medical career full of bad news and evolved into a joyful health integration coach, helping hundreds of women find their healthy. You're more than your dress size. Stop putting up with toxic relationships, swallowing your true emotions, and sacrificing your mental health. Stop using your body as a battlefield. You're always giving. You deserve to put yourself first, not just for your sake, but for those you love. Wise women, let's make ourselves a priority right now. It's time to raise some health together. If you're ready to take the first step, visit npkhealthintegration.com and take the free questionnaire to assess where you are in your health journey right now. And if you're ready to take a bolder step into possibility with your health journey, email me at npk at npkhealthintegration.com to learn more about classes and coaching. Welcome wise women and wise men today to my virtual living room. Today I am thrilled because to me, as you know, I'm a nerd. I am excited to have a conversation in community in my living room with this amazing crowd of people. This is the first time I have done this large a panel. And so I have been anticipating this with great joy. Today, my guests in community, since we are having a discussion about community and community health, are a friend to the former podcast, Orlando Bishop. Orlando is a personal performance coach, friend, and I can keep going on and on, uh, but definitely a friend of the podcast. Dr. Marcia Mikulak, who has also been on the previous podcast, and I just fell in love with Marcia's mind, her personality, <laughs> her wit, and I was just really excited to have her on the show today to talk about community. And because Marcia is such a fabulous person. She brought her comrade, Benjamin Davis, who is a postdoc fellow who is who stands for human rights. I would encourage you to go to his uh, website to learn more about him because I was really impressed. Ben brought his students uh, along today, Elizabeth Wong, Dylan, Miriam, and Ola. And I am just pumped to have this conversation. I'm going to stop going on and on, but set the table for us. So health. Health is something that we think of um, as being very individual and very um, prescribed. Community. That's a word that's getting thrown around in the culture very casually. And so I really wanted to understand, because I'm passionate about both subjects, the juxtaposition between personal health and a healthy community. It's like a cell. A cell is not all by itself. It's a 
part of the organism. A cell maintains homeostasis or balance or its own health within the context of maintaining steady state. That's what homeostasis is, always trying to balance. A cell works with other cells to form an organ. An organ is part of a larger system. Multiple systems make up the organism, make up the human body. And the human body interacts with other humans, with other external factors to maintain homeostasis, balance, and health. So with that being said, I would like to open up the floor and ask everyone the first question. Let's start with health so we can dive into community first. Whoever wants to go first, when I say health, what does that mean to you? To me, this is Dr. Mikulak, health is not simply a biological definition of the human body and whether it has stasis or not. Health has everything to do with the constructed brain, the constructed notion of mind, uh, community, who we think we are, our identities, um, how we position ourselves in terms of socioeconomics, how, uh, where we live, our geography. I mean, it's a very comprehensive picture that is reliant upon what we call a notion of self to a certain degree. So that, that's sort of the broadest definition I can come up with at the moment. Thank you. I'll, I'll jump in. And this is, a, this is a little on the wordier side for me, but some other work I've been doing led me to this, which is I, I feel like it's the optimization of who you are and how you do. I think it's like any like and as I thought about it, like, OK, wider, wider, what is it? And I started to say balance. You just use that word. But I think, yeah, it's really optimizing who you are and what you do. And I think that means different things for each person on earth. Um, I'll jump in. I think, like you said, Orlando, it has various definitions. But I think for me, um, health, and when I think of myself as being the most healthy, um, it is kind of having soundness in mind, body, and spirit. And so for me, if my physical, emotional, mental, spiritual needs are kind of taken care of and nurtured, that's when I feel like I'm most healthy. And I think that can apply to a larger level, but um, on an individual level as well. I can jump in as well. This is Miriam. Um, I think health also involves a strong level of striving for kind of self-understanding. Um, I think to make sure that you're healthy and, you know, whatever that means to you, we all have very kind of different understandings and definitions. Um, is to be able to check in with yourself to see what that means and when you have achieved kind of a healthy position. Um, I also think health is not kind of a final threshold. You're always finding different meanings and, and different things. So it's not necessarily a finalized definition. Um, so I kind of see it as an ever-growing, ever-changing thing, but that involves a lot of in involvement um, from yourself and self-reflection. I'll just jump in here after this point because I think I couldn't say it any better than Miriam did. Um, I think that health really is something that is A, individualized and B, is constantly cope, like being constructed on an ongoing basis. I think the predominant narrative is to believe that there's one way to be healthy for mm -hmm. everybody, um, but that is totally not the case at all. Um, and I say co-constructive because as a trans person, what I believed was healthy for me, um, you know, two years ago is completely antithetical to everything that I believe healthy for me is now uh, with both mental and physical health. So that's what I would say. 
I really appreciate Dylan, not to, to double dip on the one question here, but I really appreciate what Dylan just introduced in terms of time on two levels. I think there's something around um, sustainability. And I know when I'm sort of moving toward healthy, but maybe not in the healthiest place, it's like I'm focused on physical now and I'm really and I'm killing it on physical. But I'm like and when I felt I've been healthiest is when there's a stretch of time where at least everything can't be to 100 all the time, but where I'm there's some maintenance, nothing's being neglected as as I'm going in terms of uh, health in that way. And, and, and yes, that, they, you know, the needs, the needs do change. I'd like to just add on to what Orlando has said and Dylan, and that is that uh, there's two things. Uh, how I identify is a is a very deeply personal construction, but it's also dependent upon the what we call community, the people around me to a certain extent. And further, the idea that i'm I'm healthy can't be separated in in my mind from every other aspect of what I'm doing and who I am. And so it's not just my body that that constitutes my health. And it makes me go back to thinking about community. How does community help us do these things that we say keeps us healthy or helps us maintain our individual need and experience of health? I've been thinking since moving back to the U.S. uh, from Canada, um, at which I've gotten many questions, including from Lyft drivers, like, why did you move back? But in in Canada, having a a province provided healthcare meant that if I had something going on with my body, I would be, I would just go, I would call my primary care provider or I would go to the emergency room, whatever it was. And I have noticed since coming back, I think this is close to Dr. Mickey Lack's point on community. I think about how much money I have. I think what is going on with my body. And then I think, could I actually afford, (laughs) could I afford the emergency room? In this moment, or is this more of an urgent care sort of trip, or am I in the cabinet trying to figure out if I have any non-expired medicine that will take me through this moment? So there is the, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not thrilled that my brain will jump immediately to that economic calculus in that moment, but it, it has been something I've observed since changing my context or changing my environment or society, or however you want to say that. Hmm. What a rich set of comments. Elizabeth, did you want to weigh in at all? Sure. Um, I've been listening to everyone's comments on um, the links between health and growth, particularly communal growth. Um, And I think this made me think about uh, the ways that communities respond together to health concerns that affect multiple people. So um, in particular, I was thinking about um, Indigenous nations uh, and even other communities and access to clean water um, or different uh, environmental threats that uh, pose very dangerous health risks. And I think it's interesting that um, by necessity, communities have to respond to these threats together and health automatically becomes, uh, you know, (laughs) larger than the individual, I guess. I was going to say, I think there's something to be explored and that's really, uh, really insightful, Elizabeth. I think there's something to be explored around. I can optimize my own health, even in the context of a community that is showing itself to be 
um, unhealthy in some way. So playing back to your thing about the cells, I could have an issue with my heart, but my liver might be fine. Uh, and then maybe, but my body won't be fine. Like eventually my liver is going to learn to care about the heart. And I think that um, right now, or maybe forever, but certainly in this moment in the United States, I think Ben's point about how we think about health and and who gets taken care of and who doesn't is a lot of like, hey, where's the liver? It's not my problem. And I'm like, oh, it's, 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 it'll be your problem soon enough. Don't you worry. Um, so I think there's, uh, I, I think the balance between community health as we, however, we're defining it and individual health is one to look at too. And now here's an ad from our sponsor. In the mood for coffee, tea, yummy pastries, or cool swag? My friends at Infusco have got you covered. Infusco Coffee Roasters is a cozy neighborhood coffee joint in Sawyer and St. Joseph, Michigan. Infusco stands for a healthy community. They craft irresistible seasonal drinks, sourcing local artisans' products. The flavors shine from quality ingredients, and their beans are roasted on site. They do not hide behind tons of sugar. Every time I go, I'm greeted by my name with a smile. Bad service is just non-existent. It feels like stepping into a friend's living room. They keep it personal. Old school, eclectic coffee mugs on the wall. Fun merch, including stickers designed by artists, t-shirts, and sweatshirts. It's the perfect place to get to know your neighbors and chat with tourists. You will always find people deep in conversation. Special events keep it fresh. Community, health, the heart of Sawyer. That's in Fusco. I hope to meet you there. So Orlando, that's a perfect bridge to lead us into the discussion of community. My husband and I took a trip to Santa Fe uh, recently. Unfortunately, I couldn't meet Marcia, but next time. But at any rate, we took this road trip and we drove through Kansas. And I had never driven through Kansas before, but I'm telling you, travel is an incredible teacher. It was visually stunning to see this open landscape and to see the distance between communities, the small towns where there were just you know, a few people. And so I could see the idea of community being really hyper-focused, really microscopic, where it's like, if I, I survival becomes more of the um, impetus for looking at health or being only concerned about yourself and or being concerned about the small sphere of people surrounding you and and not really being able to picture someone in Flint, Michigan or someone far away in California who's struggling and feeling very much apart. So with that being said, what does community mean to each one of you? I'd like to start this. I'm going to read some definitions that um, that are on the web from sources that you can find very easily that define a sort of um, social discourse on what community means, a kind of common notion of community. And then um, I think each one of us can, can find that, uh, no, that's not what it is. The Oxford English Dictionary, for example, says a body of people who live in the same place 
usually sharing a common culture or ethnic identity, hence a place where a particular body of people lives. That's one definition. The Oxford Learners Dictionary says a group of people who share the same religion, race, job, etc., which means that there is a kind of common denominator to us all. But there's always this notion in these definitions, and I have several more, but in, uh, because of time, I'm going to keep it short. One of the things that is totally ignored in these definitions is that in my community, there are LGBTQ people, there are people of color, there are people like myself who has a Ukrainian background. My grandfather fled the Ukraine in order to come to the United States, um, or women who experience specific types of um, alienation, et cetera, et cetera. So with this in mind, what is this notion of community and how does it come together to work for all of our disparate needs? Because we're not all cohesive, you know? And what would it mean, one last question, to not make a judgment about anything? Is that possible? Is it possible to not, to hear what someone says without agreeing or disagreeing, being dichotomous? And if so, what might that mean? Where would that take us? So that's, that's my thought on this. I can jump in. I have a connected reflection on, on kind of the definition of community. Um, I was listening to the podcast Ologies with um, Allie Ward as the host, and she had an etymologist on, Helen Zaltzman. And it was a few days ago, so I knew I was going to be on this podcast. And they actually spoke about the word community, which, and I thought, you know, I have to remember that definition and, and their conversation there. But um, Dr. Mikulek, it was something similar about that. So they were talking about how often the word community is used interchangeably with people when we should really be saying people. For example, um, the Indigenous community, when we should be saying, you know, Indigenous people um, are experiencing this. Because within that facet of Indigenous people, um, like you said, Dr. McLeck, there's so many intersections. There's people who are dealing with different things. They might not necessarily prescribe to the idea of being a full community in the way that whoever is kind of bringing that narrative um, would, would think they are. Um, and I think that says a lot about what being in community really is. And I see it kind of as a conscious choice to be in community with somebody else. Um, so when you're using community as an interchangeable term with people, when you should really be saying, um, you know, the students who are people here, not, not the students, and community and things like that, it kind of glosses over those ideas about why people choose to be in community with one another. Um, so yeah, those were just my initial reflections. But uh, I think the etymology of the word was was a really interesting discussion as well. I'll just jump in if that's okay. And I'll try to be as concise as possible, which is something I usually struggle with. Um, but for me, community is uh, something with two sides. On one hand, I feel like the typical connotation I have with it is positive. And in that, I think it of uh, I think of community as resistance in the most radical form. I think of community as a rejection of individualism, individualistic pressures, uh, and the productivity-centered culture where we're expected to drop everything in order to sort of feed into capitalism. And in that, I think of it as a threat to powerful structures of dom structures of domination um, and something rather beautiful, um, a space in which we can find mutual love and mutual aid, and resilience and support um, and grassroots activism, 
But at the same time, I also think of community as a potentially dangerous space. As a trans person, community oftentimes for me can be a place where conformity is policed uh, and where shame is weaponized in order to you know, yield people towards the norm. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there to emphasize that it, it's both something that can be very beautiful, but can also have dangers when we think about who is really a part of this and who is being excluded. Loving that you, you raised um, it's a, like many things, whether you're talking about democracy or capitalism or whatever, right? That, that we tend to want to be on a side. And I think it's a thing, right? So the same water that we have to make sure we drink is the same water we can drown in. And so I think there's something incredibly powerful about looking at with the last few comments put together, looking at what are the defining dimensions in the conversation, in a given conversation about community, because as Dylan started to speak, it was thrown around the idea, you know, some ideas there and phrase. I was like, man, I missed this. Right. And I was like, miss what? Like, what do you talk about? You just met Dylan virtually like five minutes ago. And what I miss is, that time you spend often for me, it was in school, not only, but where you just, there's an idea and we're going to explore it. Right. So all of a sudden that's a different brand of community, right? We're, we're curious, maybe intellectual, perhaps somewhat academic. And I think there's something to be said around how we define community and it's possible to define it around in, in different ways than we do. Right. So I, I, I almost think that's its own, maybe part of community as we think about it, is a more conscious and aware definition of which dimensions really matter to us in doing this. I'm going to jump in again, as always. When I think about community as dangerous, and and Dylan, thank you for bringing that up, and also um, Orlando, thank you for bringing up the uh, analogy or the metaphor of drinking the water and drowning in it. Uh, Here's a pragmatic example. I serve on several committees and commissions right now, and one of the committees, commissions actually, um, had a task, which was to read a particular document and see what the document was actually speaking about. I'm not going to identify the the committee in any other terms. And these were all adults. They were all intelligent people. um, And they were of a very, very different backgrounds. However, the danger in community also comes in with relations of power. And people on this committee, the ones who had the most difficult time just seeing what was being said, were those who held powerful positions. And so my task as the chair of this side committee, this subcommittee, was to get people to just identify what was being said and that uh, some of these people could not do it. Now, this isn't a judgment on them as much as an observation. And so my question is why we may choose a community to be with because they agree with us. We like them. But what do we do when we're in a committee or a commission like I am and there's such a divide? There's really little opportunity or, or doorways through which to enter together. And I, I see this positionality, you know, putting ourselves into a specific place and then our experience with power and what we fear, fear that we're going to lose or how we can control and manipulate for what we feel is the best solution. This is, these are the community dynamics that are really, really dangerous and often can lead to 
very uh, unstable settings, my work in human rights has put me in very dangerous circumstances, exactly for the same reasons. So I'm going to leave that as an open question to everyone. And I'd like to piggyback onto that because um, a lot of what everyone is saying is really resonating with me. I've moved to a, a new community, relatively new now, about three years now, where um, I am the only African-American person in the community. I have not seen any other ones except for tourists at the coffee shop. And so the point I'd like to make is there is definitely we got to be careful, right, with inclusion versus exclusion. I think part of the idea of community, whether you think of it from a the standpoint of a people or geographical, is there is a container. And when you pair that with our natural evolution to be cautious, to fear change, to be risk averse. Um, we also have to pause and realize that there's a level of awareness to have. And if you're, you have a growth mindset and you foster awareness of your own biases and you can be honest with yourself, I think that opens up, um, more possibility to what you're talking about, Marcia, which is, we can't control external factors, but isn't it important to discuss them as human beings and to actually listen? But again, that takes awareness of your own biases. I've noticed my own biases in walking into local stores here where I'm already defensive, um, where I'm already making assertions in my mind about if I'm safe here, if I'm not safe here, or I can hear sometimes uh, of a little bit of or feel this extra layer of caution in myself when I'm going somewhere. Well, will this person accept me? I don't look like them. Constantly feeling like that. But I had a marvelous interaction with a group of women at an, an event in, in town. And I was, again, the only person of color there. And I will say, because I'm a podcaster and I love deep conversations, I hate superficiality. I facilitated a conversation by just being curious. And I learned about each woman and we learned about how much we had in common, even though we didn't look alike, because I was curious and because I decided to lower those defenses and give a chance. I know I'm extremely wordy right now, but I've really been thinking about this a lot. So I'm going to stop now and give the floor to someone else. I'll actually dive in. It's something that you said, and I think it's important in the context of defining community and the conversations we're having about dimensions. And you said that you discovered what you had in common with them, which was obviously a way to create um, connection and bonding. I think there's also something to be considered around who amongst us chooses to create community with people who are unlike us. And I think about this specific, and I'll take it out of, you know, race, gender for a moment and just say uh, in work situations, I am, and they have different names for it, but basically I'm the person who like comes up with the big picture. I have an idea, we'll do a thing and it'll do this and people will come and it'll be great. I'm really good at that part of the conversation. I have, I used to unconsciously, now I do it consciously. 
I generally, when I have one of those, start immediately looking around for the person who's going to make sure I fill out the paperwork. And right. Because I don't, I don't need, I mean, it's fun to talk to other, you know, visionaries or dreamers or whatever you want to say, but we will sit here and dream forever and miss all the deadlines. So, so I think there's a power to that. And I think acknowledging where we to choose to connect and disconnect is really important. I'll toss on to the end of that, that it might be the distance between in, in marketing. I've learned the difference between demographics and psychographics. And I think I tend in my creation of community to be on a much more of a psychographic uh, wavelength tip, whatever, than a, than a demographic one necessarily. Also, I've grown, I've lived in New, in Brooklyn, I've lived in New Haven, I've lived in LA. I haven't lived in Topeka, right? So maybe if I lived in Topeka, my view of the world would be a little bit different there. But I was always surrounded by a ton of people who were nothing like me. I'm thinking about um, the day when Derek Chauvin was convicted as guilty of murdering George Floyd in the house in Minneapolis. And I went with my brother and his boyfriend to um, Chicago Avenue to go to the Cup Foods. And there were, we went downtown first um, and uh, people were going to different places, including to Chicago Avenue to sort of um, pay our respects or remember or however you want to say it. And there was an art gallery that had kind of popped up. And I remember going in there. And a number, it was getting quite busy as the evening went on and more people turned out after the verdict. And so it filled up. And the woman who was running the gallery said, you know, we're at capacity, people. Some, some of us have to leave. This is what community looks like. I remember thinking, um, you know, this was still a time when in different discourses in Minnesota and Minneapolis, the newspapers and so on, there was a question about what was happening around the cup foods because there was a critique of police that meant um, it was sort of, it became an experiment of like what happens in a, when a group of people decides to try to live without um, police forces or do not, does not welcome the police in the same way that other places or people do. And what was interesting, so some of us left the, the art gallery, of course, I, I left. And one of the things that I often reflect on in that moment, that if we think about what was, what is the community there, what is held in common, right? It's not um, an ethnic bond necessarily. It's not a linguistic bond necessarily. It's not that we look a certain way. It's that a group of people had committed, whether in that moment in the art gallery, or in that space on Chicago Avenue to try to live without coercive force as an acceptable way of solving problems. And so I think like, right, sometimes we talk about an anarchist or an abolitionist, you brought up Kansas, Dr. Kelly, you know, did we think John Brown rated, you know, going from Kansas to raid Harper's Ferry, but there's also, a way I think those, those terms could be, we could talk about abolition and it could be thought of also as, as that simple care, for one another or commitment to solving our problems in a certain way that doesn't involve violence. That word coercion, I think, has a real place in talking about community and healthy community. So I just really want to thank you for that, Ben, because I think my experience is whenever coercion is part of the creation of the group, 
it has more of a tendency to go in Dylan's direction of like, ooh, that's a little bit, you know, that's brown shirts community. We, we're not looking for that. And uh, I think that uh, there's there's something around invitation versus coercion. I don't necessarily have the answers on it, but I think is it is is you know you you will kneel or you are anti-American. Is that? That's that doesn't feel like an invitation to me. That feels like coercion. And I think there's something to be explored there around how we end up defining the community as well. I think there's a power in self-selection. And what I mean by that is so we have identities to come back to what Dr. Mikulak said earlier. That's part of our the formula or the way we think about being in community. But I think if you can In that example I gave about feeling threatened when I went into that event, I'm also largely an introvert, so social interactions like that with strangers also seem threatening. But if I don't identify, if I'm able able to let go of the identity of I am an introvert uh, and also entering the space and letting go of I am only this or I am a Black woman and letting go of the identification, I can find some common ground with people in different settings because I can find something to select, something to let go of as part of my identity in order to allow myself to feel safe in that space. Um, Thank you, Nadine. I was actually going to speak to just that, this constructed notion of the I, of me. And those are biases. They're biases I have about myself and who I am and what I can and what I cannot do. And the question I have, and I'd I'd love to hear from the students to answer this question. It's nice that we can all be reasonable, but oftentimes in circumstances of great tension, we're not reasonable. And so what happens, what, by what process, if I, if I can be the observer of both myself and what is occurring without a judgment or an opinion, then what might happen? And what does it take to get there? That's a really important question. There were times in my travels in Africa, principally, where I was um, in very difficult circumstances. I was still doing, I was doing human rights work there. I had actually done something that the the police that were guarding a particular location Um, which was the president's house. And I didn't know I had pulled into the driveway of the president's house because there's no sign president. There's no White House. There's no nothing. And these guards came out from behind recessed walls with their machine guns and uh, told me to get out of my car. And then they took my purse. They took my passport. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't take my passport. I'm a, you know, I'm a this, I'm a U.S. citizen. And they said, you move, we'll shoot you. And in that moment, it was very clear (laughs) Dr. Davis knows this story. Um, It was very clear that I had no rights whatsoever. And the only thing I had was my humanity between that person and myself. That was it. It just, it just, bam, it just clicked on me really quickly. And so I was interrogated for several hours and eventually they let me go. And I've had several circumstances where that's happened. And every time it's that relationship between myself and that other person. But do we have to get near death to have that happen? And what are ways that we can 
get there by being self-reflexive, as we say in anthropology, that is observing myself while I'm acting, but not following the stories that my brain tells me, but becoming aware of those stories and letting them just be. So questions, students, I would really love to hear because you're the you're the next step here. I'm retired. <laughs> I finally have universal health care. <laughs> I don't have to, you know, wonder how I'm going to survive. And believe me, there were many, many, many years of that. I think that, I mean, this is a really large question. And I don't know that I'll speak to uh, the self-reflexive part of it. But um, I think in various ways, we've spoken to the ways that community involves exchange. Uh, and that might be exchange in terms of, um, you know, negotiating what kinds of needs or what kind of care you need from another person. Um, but that also might come in the form of financial aid. And I was thinking a little bit about projects for mutual aid. And I think that they involve the same kind of human to human interaction uh, where you maybe abstract yourself from um, your specific identity markers or positions and uh, think about yourself as, um, I don't know, uh, just a peer to someone else. And maybe that's uh, an analogous, well, I don't know that it's analogous, but close to an analogous situation to the one that you described. I'll just jump in here. Um, I was going to say, again, I love my dichotomies. Um, I feel like it is a, a two-sided coin in the sense that on one level, I find that these snap judgments that we make that uh, Nadine was talking about, in which we center our identity and perhaps the distinction between our identity and someone else's uh, as a point of survival, um, like that snap judgment can be something that can, you know, alert us to potentially unsafe situations or circumstances, whether it's physically or just for our social well-being. Um, and so it becomes difficult for me to reckon letting that wall down when, you know, the risk potentially far outweighs the reward. But at the same time, I have had those scenarios where I ignored my gut judgment, my better judgment, and I found that we stood on more common ground than I believe we did. Um, and the growth that can be had from that is immense. But I don't know how we push back those moments of, you know, am I unsafe? You know, is it worth the risk here? Um, so that's what's on my mind for me when I think about this. I'm going to, because this is going to piggyback really well on what you just said, Dylan, and just brilliant. Um, uh, Stephen Covey, you know, the the seven habits, uh, there's a, a series of quotes, I, I found them, <laughs> that uh, have stuck with me since I read that book several years ago. And it says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. I think there's something powerful about calling out choice there and without too much of my voice here i think the choices that we're making in the name of uh community i think in that what i've found because i've been working with that space for a couple of reasons of my own and what i find powerful in that space are questions 
I find that in terms of moving out, like the Walt Whitman, you know, be curious, not judgmental for all the Ted Lasso fans who might be here. If I can get myself asking questions, even if I think I know the answers, that usually moves me closer to that curious side of the spectrum. And it's really helpful. Orlando, I think that makes me think of, you know, the idea of being curious um, as opposed to just jumping to judgment. Um, and back to Dr. Mikulak's, um question of, you know, how to maybe refrain from judgment while I'm observing myself and others. I think for me as um, a student journalist, so one of the first things that we learn is how to be objective um, through our entire reporting process, whether it's, you know, speaking to sources or actually sitting down and writing something. And so we learn okay, here's how to ask certain questions. Here's how you conduct yourself without making it known what your opinion is, without putting yourself into a story. Um, And so in that aspect, maybe curiosity kind of takes the forefront. Um, So you take yourself out of it. You remain curious to learn um, the different complexities, the nuances of a situation. But on the other hand, as we like deconstruct the idea of objectivity, um, we begin to learn about the various harms that it has more so than maybe the goods. And so if I'm speaking to someone who has just gone through a situation, you know, they're suffering, I'm not going to sit there and pretend to be this like robot of just asking questions, tell me your answer and that's it. I'll go away. But rather, how do I make my role as a journalist, um, a person who can sit with this person and maybe again, be in, sit, sit with this person as a form of community Um, To not only listen to them report about what's going on, but also maybe, you know, having that empathetic um, listening um, aspect as well. And so I think I tried to kind of understand it from this both the dichotomy, again, like what you said, Dylan. But um, I think there is a lot to be said about how, I don't know, I think the concept of objectivity kind of functions here. I'm just going to quickly jump in just one last time. Sorry, I know I already spoke, but... Um, just on this Orlando's point about curiosity and asking questions, I was just reflecting in this moment, and I thought about the ways in which in conversation, when people ask me questions specific to my trans identity and to my transition, that's an immediate green flag for me and makes me feel very comfortable with them. Because um, I think the scariest thing for me is when someone is not interested in knowing Um, Because I think there's potential for the formation of opinions that are radically antithetical to my existence. Um, So someone being in a space where they at least want to know whether it's, you know, a deeply philosophical question or one that just has to do with the phonetics of the process. um, That to me, I think is it makes me immediately feel safe and comfortable, Um, which goes right back to Nadine, your point about, you know, you created this sense of, I guess, micro community by asking those questions and by being curious and you learned about everyone who you were with. So I, I think the power of that, of curiosity and asking questions and expressing that you want to know about someone and their human lived experience um, cannot be understated. I wanted to share just, yeah, kind of my own reflection. So I'm nearing the end of my first year of law school, just have a few months left. Thankfully, <laughs> it's been a hard year, but but I've enjoyed it for sure. And it's also been a lot of a lot of that experience of confronting my biases and thinking about the spaces that I believe I belong in or the spaces that I maybe came into law school thinking were kind of reserved for people who look different than me, who who are normally dominant in society and, and things like that. And 
I really appreciate there's a strong group of um, BIPOC female professors um, who have created kind of a group. Um, we had one meeting where we watched The Chair with Sandra O, oh, an episode of that show. And so we were reflecting kind of on um, the academic environment and bringing your identity into that um, while also making sure that you don't put aside maybe not your biases, but the experiences that you bring to the situation. And so and, and one of the professors in that group is a corporate lawyer. She's been involved in the business sector for most of her career. And she's one of the leading professors at our institution in that area. And hearing her speak about the ways that she's allowed her identity to come through in her work and how it's actually helped to give her community with students who kind of see themselves in her or break down, you know, that classic statement but break down barriers that as when she was a student you know she didn't think were possible was very kind of enlightening in a way because it allowed me to think about those fears kind of not as static and and how I tended to view them before I came in you know I thought okay if I want to be in corporate law there's a certain code I have to speak there's a certain way I have to be and I found that changing my choices you know I was volunteering for certain things that I saw maybe my identity as a person of color as a woman would um, would allow for that to flourish and I was going away from other opportunities but kind of seeing through her experience and having those open discussions reminds me that when we do that, we are closing the door for ourselves and maybe we're contributing to that idea of a community being exclusive. And of course, there's a lot of pushback. Sorry, I realize I'm going off um, and talking for a while here, but there's a lot of pushback initially, right? There's a lot of uncomfortability when you are trying to enter those spaces that aren't typically designed for you. Um, but I think the idea of having community, and especially in those lunch sessions that we've had where we watch the show and we reflect on it, um, is a really important kind of sidekick to that. Um, yeah, so I found that entering spaces that don't seem like they're designed for you is really important, but also being able to lean on other people and actually reflect on those experiences is, is really important too. So I think there can be ways to have that objectivity, put aside your biases, but I think in order to feel healthy and to feel supported, you need to be able to commiserate with people who are doing the same thing and, and having to struggle in that way. I hope that makes sense, but something I've been reflecting on in my experience. Miriam, thank you for what you said and what you have pointed out and sort of brought full circle is, is Orlando's uh, contribution of the question, questioning, being able to ask questions. And the most inspiring experiences I've had personally, and I don't think this is common, was in graduate school working on my doctorate in seminars where the discourse was to take apart everything I thought I knew. And so my brain was coming apart, literally. It felt like um, I wasn't, I couldn't figure out what was what. And that was a very liberating, first of all, very scary, and then a very liberating feeling. And to be able to watch myself and my biases, I mean, there is no way to not be biased. And so being honest all the time may seem like a very hard thing to do, but it's it's very liberating. So this then raises the question of exhaustion. 
And um, how are we going to maintain um, a sense of curiosity in a society that simply most of the time wants us to agree with whoever's speaking? How do we maintain the joy of questioning when there are people who don't want to be questioned? And again, I'd really like to hear from you students who may not have a whole lot of experience yet, but I think you, we think we have to have a, a intellectual answer to something and we don't. There's that silence is where something comes out that has nothing to do with intellectual brain. So I really want to hear from you. Uh, I, I, I don't know if this is as direct of an answer as I would like it be. And I think it ties back a little more to what Nadine was just talking about. Um, but I feel like in my personal experience, whenever I am being asked questions, which sometimes can feel invasive and sometimes can feel exhausting to answer and sometimes can be something that makes you feel ostracized in a room, you know, when you're the only person that questions can be asked to and the whole room turns to you now waiting an answer. Uh, it can be an uncomfortable experience. But for me, personally, the thing that propels me to continue encouraging others to ask questions and to answering these questions to the fullest of my ability is because I remember that every question that I answer is one that a girl in the future doesn't have to answer. Um, and every like every answer that I provide is an opportunity for me to change someone's mind about trans people. Because a lot of people that I found, they have formulated a view of trans or queer people out of a lack of having any in their life. They've never interacted with any. And so the only idea of a trans person is the narrative that gets produced by people who are external to the trans identity, which leaves a lot of space for misinformation, leaves a lot of space for fear mongering and for the creation of caricatures. But I found that like for people who have never met a trans person, them sitting down and talking to me, I am now responsible for creating their image of a trans person in their mind. And if I can answer their questions and if I can be kind and if I can be courteous and if I can be empathetic and leave space for them to not know um, and not even know what to ask exactly, um, then that can make, you know, it way easier on the next trans person that they interact with and make the world a safer place for us. Um, so that, that's my response to that. That is incredibly powerful. And I found it to be true. I'm just a person as the way my life has unfolded. I found it my I found myself in a lot of predominantly white spaces. This is how my life has unfolded. And I think I, I've absolutely experienced and engaged in what you're describing. I also think you, I, everyone should feel room to say not today, like, or not in this room or not, you know, like, if, you know, I tell, I do coaching and I tell the kids, like, if everybody does something, nobody has to do everything. And I think if, I think if there's an invitation versus coercion to go back to that idea, I think part of an invitation is that the other person is allowed to say, I'm sorry, I can't make it that evening. And so can we, can, can we accept that? So absolutely love and and feel it's critical what you described and feel that it's critical that you be able to say yeah i'm not uh answering that question today i'm not going to give you a reason why or explain that it's offensive it might not be offensive it might just be factual and i just might be tired i really like that contribution orlando i've been in situations specifically i think it was um 
a classroom where I've always, I've kind of been put in the situation where I felt like I had to kind of answer questions um, and be a representative um, for Muslims, but Muslim women specifically. Um, And after a couple, you know, times of doing that and answering, which of course I, as a general rule, like you were saying, Dylan, I took that as an opportunity, um, especially in the way that I'm answering the questions I took as an opportunity. Um, but I think after a while and kind of noticing how the questions were, were being asked, I began to kind of take a step back. And like you said, think about, well, I shouldn't have to always answer if I'm kind of being forced to. And so I think as as soon as I kind of established that, the dynamic shifted. And so I appreciate that contribution a lot. We are coming to close to the end. And I do, uh, I want to end on uh, by asking you one more simple question. (laughs) Not that any of these questions have been simple, um, but I thank you all for your generosity and your vulnerability, your openness. I also want to say thank you to each and every one of you for making one of my dreams come true. It may be small, but it's one of my little dreams. I remember that I was very nervous before this conversation, as I said at the top of the hour, because I was bringing up memories for myself. It was a narrative, a story where I was transported back to that scared little girl who was just quaking. Her knees were knocking at the University of Chicago. She didn't feel like she belonged and she felt like she was surviving and would find herself in classrooms, big or small, unwilling to participate. It was purely education at that point. And now I'm this big girl. I'm evolved and I forget who talked about health as this evolution. One of you did so brilliantly in the beginning, but I've evolved into this person who is a lifelong learner and has had the absolute thrill of being at this lovely round table and not feeling at all excluded and um, part of a a beautiful conversation. So I'm going to leave. I would love to hear from each one of you a quick snapshot of the conversation. What is the biggest takeaway that what's something you can't unsee or unhear as we hang up in a few moments? Nadine, I really appreciated your story about kind of entering your new environment and finding ways to connect with the women that you kind of initially went in thinking that you wouldn't. Um, That's actually something I've been thinking a lot about recently and constantly trying to check myself. You know, I tend to make judgments. Like I said, um, I'm in my first year of law school. So we're being introduced to so many kinds of firms and people and opportunities for the future. And I tend to assume I already know myself. At 23 years old, I'm aware what I like and what I don't like and the environments I strive in, but that's not the reality whatsoever. And so I think this year has been a lot of growth in in that sense. And I'm definitely going to take your story forward. And I think I'll remember it when I when I make those judgments initially and try and check myself and be in conversation with myself. For me, I, I just the amount of energy I I can get from community in terms of exploring ideas and thinking about how things apply in my life. I mean, you know, I, uh, yeah, I found myself thinking, you know, if Professor Davis is, you know, if it's open enrollment, you might, you might, you might look up and see me one day because this was, uh, this was really, this was really great. If you got, you know, if y'all have like a bring your granddad to class day or something like that, you know, you just call me up. I'll be there, you know. So, Excellent. Uh, so that, yeah, you're welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. No, but it was a really great conversation. But that's really what struck me is I I've always enjoyed this kind of engagement around ideas and figuring that piece out. So thank you. Well, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm I'm right there with Orlando. Um, uh, Dr. Davis, can I take your class? <laughs> um, one of the things I always appreciate and and uh, always have appreciated as a as a professor is when students are engaged and willing to feel a little bit uncomfortable and then begin to like open their their minds, you know, to this as um, I think it was Miriam who said that she thought she knew who she was. I, I thought I knew who I was and I'm I'm far from knowing who I am even today. It just constantly changes. So the thing that really stuck with me is um, questioning, knowing when to say not today, and remembering that learning about biases is exciting rather than frightening. And that, that takes us back to health because if I'm resisting, if I'm resisting to learn about myself, if I'm determined to think I know who I am and what I need, which is not bad, but you know, it's very limited. Um, and if I can take pleasure in asking questions, then my own sense of self and my my physical being is going to feel better. That's my experience. I think uh, I also really appreciated, um, sorry, Dylan, our um, discussion about questions. Also, just the ways that we have shifting responsibilities to people who we are in community with. Um, and I think just the idea that we have to remain uh, an open dialogue always uh, to find the ways that we can best support each other and also perhaps best counteract uh, any negative forces of community. I think what I would say my biggest takeaway is isn't super distinct from what Marsha and Miriam were saying before. I think it sort of ties in along the same lines, um, but it's this commitment to the idea that I am not a static being that I am not a self that just has to sort of be peeled back and uncovered, but rather something that I'm continually creating and constructing and, you know, uh, making decisions about and making undecisions about. Um, because I think as soon as we decide who we are on a static level and cement who we are, um, I think that can be dangerous in terms of no longer being curious, no longer asking questions, no longer being committed to changing your mind, growing and developing in new ways. Um, so I think just my biggest takeaway is shifting how I see myself within a community. Yeah, I mean, I think I want to pose a kind of question or or almost a challenge to our group and our, particularly our audience, which is, you know, there's a way we... Particularly, I think people who who understand themselves to some extent on the left or as progressive or that are um, there's a way we've come to talk about there are some virtues, interpersonal virtues, I'll call them an openness to questions, a curiosity about ourselves and others, a, a sense of growth that probably could, you know, it means we might these are traits that might make make one a very good partner or um, a good person to work with. I think there's also a way, and this might not be totally clear, but I'll try to say it where in our in our moment of individualism and market forces that people talk about in terms of neoliberalism, 
the burden so often is put on the individual to grow, to become better, to learn how to use the right words. And we almost lose sense of, lose a sense of the wider political opportunity. So the question becomes sometimes in, in what direction are we growing toward or in through what norms or on whose terms, right? I'm thinking someone like Malcolm X said, you don't integrate into a burning house. And so there is the question of survival, but then there's also the question of, um, is there a way to check against or, or to consider the direction of those, that capacity for growth? Because there is a history. And I think we've lost some of this because there, you know, the, the, the communist party, for instance, was persecuted so relentlessly under the, the McCarthy years, which in some states is we're seeing a resurgence of, of people who love Joseph McCarthy. You know, there were people like Claudia Jones or W.E.B. Du Bois, or particularly a history of, of say black Marxists who were had no interest in you know they were not fundraising they were not trying to uh, grow in a direction of success in the way the country defines success it was about building a party or organizing working people and suffered un- tremendous consequences your passport is taken you can't tra- Paul Robeson can't travel has to appeal can't do it you know so there's a way. I just want to bring in some of those names and sort of uplift some of that history in this conversation because it's important, I think, that our the challenge is not to let those individualistic norms be our goal and instead try to link what we're up to to building power in a way that I think Orlando said very nicely when he used powerful in a po- positive term. Right? P- power is something to, that could be built in community that has to do with um, the rights we have, the healthcare we have, even as we sometimes get things wrong interpersonally. But that, I think, is a challenge we're left with as we talk about these habits. Thank you, Ben. Ula, do you want to take us home? All right. Um, I think what stuck with me the most really resonated. I wrote this down as um, I believe Miriam and some others were talking about it early on, is that community can be a choice. I think as a student, I often think um, my primary identity is okay, or my primary community is other students. Um, And then even within that, it's very easy to be kind of stratified by um, just kind of your academic interests or your visible identities. But I think knowing and practicing community as a choice can be very, very beautiful. And so that is my takeaway. Many, many thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And I would love to do this again. I learned a lot. Thank yeah. you. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Dr. Kelly. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. A special thank you to the students. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was so good to meet everybody. Thank you. Wise women, stop using your body as a battlefield. Move from last place to first place in your life. Let's raise health together. Take the first step and visit npkhealthintegration.com for a free health questionnaire. Ready for more? Email me at npk at npkhealthintegration.com to learn more about classes and coaching. And let's start a conversation. Thanks for listening and taking this time for yourself. See you next time.